He is risen. Amen. That's worth a hand clap. This morning is a, is a wonderful day to be able to celebrate and to remember. And uh, if for you this morning, you are new to ECC and maybe church is not a regular part of your practice. Just this morning, you felt like you just wanted to go. Way to go. I'm so glad that you're here. And, and uh, I, I hope that what we're going to talk about this morning, and I know that this morning what we're going to talk about has relevance for you. This morning, we want to talk about the topic of hope. Hope. What comes to you? What comes to mind when I say that word, hope? The New Testament definition of hope is this. Because we could all come with our own ideas, but if you take the the cross-section of the New Testament, you can define hope by this. It is a confident expectation. Not a wish. Not a faint dream, but a confident expectation. Now, when hope is understood by this definition, it implies that something is currently not fully present. Something's not quite there yet. See, some of you might be like me today, where you're like, I hope, I hope that later today I'm going to have ham and scalloped potatoes. I don't yet have them, but I might have a confident expectation that they're coming. When I go to my mom's house at Easter, which I'm not doing today, but I have a confident expectation that there'll be ham and scalloped potatoes. While the concept of hope is positive and fulfilling, it stems out of a need and a longing. This word hope is thrown around a ton in our day. There is not going to be any political campaign you ever come across that will not somewhere throw out the word hope often with a really cheap, vague understanding of what that is. But I ask you this morning, where do you find yourself? How do you and I relate to this word hope? And what does Easter have to do with that? I can ask you if you'll join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity today for each one of us to learn more about the truth of who you are, of who your son Jesus is, and what that has to do with us. And I pray for each person that's here today. God, I pray that they won't just listen to me and take it as I'm truthful, but God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who is real and who is alive, God, that you would speak to us, open our hearts to hear, so that we can come to the realization that there is hope for us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I believe that within each and every single person that's here and around the world, that there is a sense that is innately developed and ingrained within us, that there is something more. There's something more than simply what we see around us and what we experience. There's something that we need. It's that unsettledness that exists even after We get the job that we've been pining for and wanted. And we get that salary increase that we wanted. Yet, on the other side of it, there's still a longing that exists. It's the longing that exists even after months and potentially years of courting. We finally convince her to say yes. The rings and the vows are exchanged. And months afterwards, the honeymoon period is done. But yet, there's still a sense that there's something 
more. We buy the new house. We have kids. Yet there is still something missing. All we have is a new list of needs. And that feeling we only really notice in the slowed down, quiet moments of life still exists. A feeling of empty. In Romans chapter 8 in the Bible, in the New Testament, says this, For all creation, everything that's been made, is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. We're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. I don't know where you are this morning and how you relate to the notion of God and the afterlife. According to a recent national survey in the U.S., 80% of the population confessed to strongly believing in the afterlife. This is despite a culture that sells the idea of God as pure foolishness. This 80% accounts for those who brand themselves as faithful followers of religion and those who have nothing to do with religious practice. 80%. 80%. I think that this is indicative of the fact that deep inside we all know that there's more than just what we see. This can't really be all there is. It just isn't right. Is there not more to life than this? I believe the entirety of the Bible is a response to this longing and question we have, a guide into how to fulfill what we crave at our deepest level. Again, I don't know your relationship or experience with this book I talk about, the Bible. Perhaps you viewed it as a rule book, or perhaps you have no relationship with it at all. But what I hope you can see this morning as we spend time assessing and looking at it and overviewing it today, is this book is actually a love letter, and it's a guide to hope for you and for me. In the first part of the Bible, we begin to see a picture of a promised hope, a cure for what ails all mankind. A plan and provision God put in place right from day one. So let's start this morning by looking first at hope promised. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with the explanation of God's creating everything that is. Most important to God is the creation of mankind. It's a side note, but it drives me crazy. Anybody ever watch the old show Rescue 911 back in the 90s? I am aging myself. I remember as a kid watching that show and couldn't fathom the idea of people who almost died to save a cat. Some of you, you are so close with your cat, there would be no question you would go in. And you are much more caring people than I am. But if you ask God, and according to his word, there is no thing in creation that has more value. No animal, no plant, no ocean that has more value than mankind. Human beings take the highest of worth and priority. And it's because they are a creation of God that was most, he was most pleased with and whom he made in his own image. It was a reflection of himself and one made to have a connection and close relationship with his creator. In Genesis 1:26, God said to himself, God being one person, one being but three persons, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. So God made this special creation, mankind, to have a relationship with him. So he made the world and it was a paradise of perfection so that mankind could flourish. There was no sickness or death and God walked alongside them. But just as quickly as this is explained, we see in the story that paradise falls. God's one condition to men and to women was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this garden paradise he created called Eden. Now you may ask, why did God even give the choice? Why would a creator create beings and give them the capacity to make a mistake. But God created mankind again to have a relationship, to love them and to be loved by them. God's ultimate desire was to commune, to have a relationship with mankind. But relationship is a choice. You can force someone to serve you and you can force someone to say nice things about you, but you can't force someone to love you. Love is choice. And God created mankind with this unique capacity to love. He made them after his own image, his own ability to do so. And so many of you will be familiar with the story as we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Satan comes disguised as a certain and tempts Eve to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing God asked them not to do. Claiming if she did, she would be just like God herself. She would have all, his, all of his abilities and would no longer be limited. So he disobeys God's command and convinces Adam to do the same. And at this very point in history, we see the entrance of sin. The entrance of sin. I'm going to ask for a volunteer this morning. But I know no one's going to put up their hand. So I'm going to ask if there's a wife here who says, my husband is a very capable man who I know would be a great helper for you, Joel. If you could put up your hand to volunteer your husband. Thank you, Sarah. Kevin Henson, can you come up? And I also saw Brenda Belcourt. Kevin and Terry, can you come up here? That would be great. Thanks, guys. Give them a round of applause. Now, this word sin is a little dirty. Kevin, you're dressed a lot nicer than Terry, so I'm going to give Terry the other. Just being honest. Okay. So, Kevin, if you want to open the cap there, and Terry, you can take the cap off of the the food dye. Now, you might have seen this before, but as we want to talk a little bit about sin, this is a word that is a dirty word that we don't like to talk about. But sin enters mankind at this point. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Terry, can you just put a little bit of food coloring? Just put two drops. We got Adam, we got Eve. Give me two drops of food coloring there. Now, I don't know if you guys can see. Kevin, can you take the food dye out? Can you take that red out of the water without pouring it on me? It's, it's, uh, can you guys not see with the light? You can move forward just a little bit. Here's the thing with sin. Is sin came and you'd say, well, it's such a small thing. It's such a small thing. Why would sin pass to all mankind? Why would that say in Romans that it went to all mankind? 
But the consequence of sin, the original sin that came into mankind, is it infected the entire world. It infected all of humankind. And it passed on from generation to generation. And so in that, the Bible says very clearly, there was suddenly this mutation. There was suddenly this barrier called sin that affected everyone. You can put a cap on that. Now, does anybody feel like they could separate and pull the red out of that water and clear it up again? It's impossible to do. Even though it was a small bit, it couldn't be pulled out. We couldn't just cut off our arm and get rid of the sin. Eve grabbed that apple and put it in her mouth, just cut off the lips, take off the arm, and it would be all done with. It infected all of her. It affected all of us. Thanks, guys. You can give a round of applause. Since the Garden of Eden, there was a split between God and humanity. The closeness we once had was now lost. And with that, guilt and shame entered mankind. And it drew a division from the unity man once had with its creator. So we need to deal with this word sin because it's affected all of us. And I know it's one we don't like to talk about. But let's define it here. Because in order to get to where we want to go, in order to truly talk about hope, we need to identify what this word sin is. Sin is simply this. It is allowing anything in our lives to take the place of God. When the serpent, Satan, came and tempted Eve, she tempted, he tempted her with the temptation of, you can be like God. And in that, it was that I would no longer need him, that I could be my own God. Sin is allowing anything in our lives to take the place of God. The consequence of sin is death or separation from God. And at that moment is when we saw death enter our world. Physical death. Before that in history, there was not one person who was sick or had death. So now there was physical death and also spiritual death as we were no longer in the communion with God that we were. It is death or separation from God. Life is itself relationship. It is connection to the creator. The paradise mankind once experienced with God in the garden no longer existed. We had allowed for a barrier to be built between us. And it separated us from God. There was now both physical and spiritual death. But our creator built in us a capacity for intimacy and relationship with him. And now every human being was left with this needed desire for connection with him but yet because of sin, unable to reach him. Unable to pull that sin out of their own lives. Now there was the sin that was passed on because of our ancestors, because of Adam and Eve. But we read in the book of Romans that there was also sin from ourselves. Romans 3.23 says this, For everyone has sinned. Everyone in their own lives has put things in place of God. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. What have you put in place of God? What have you put as the most important priority in your life? Perhaps it's yourself. Perhaps it's your spouse. Perhaps it's someone you idolize. Perhaps it's something you want. It's wealth. It's power. It's prestige. The Bible says it clearly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our struggle with sin was not only because of the passing down of sin, but also our own personal. And this sin that came into the world now became addictive to us. 
This idea of sin being addictive might seem like a weird concept. One man shared a story with me one time that I think really helped bring it to life to me. Because sin in itself is so dirty, it's so gross that you go, why would anybody want it? No one chooses an addiction. But a friend of mine shared a story of how a man in the north hunts wolves. And what he would do is he would take a knife. And he'd take a knife and he would dip it in blood. And I don't know if you know this, but it's cold up north. And he would stick it in the ice and the snow and it would stay there. And eventually what would happen is wolves have such a love and such a lust, thirst for blood. They eventually smell it and they would come. And he would start licking the blood off the blade. But as he would do that, he begins to lacerate his own tongue. And eventually what he ends up tasting is he ends up tasting his own blood. But his lust for blood was so strong that he would continue to lick and continue to lick and continue to eat. Until eventually the wolf would bleed out. This is essentially a parallel for what sin does in our lives. No one chooses sin. No one chooses wrong. But yet it appears so attractive. At first it appears so fulfilling that we begin just just to be attracted to it. We begin to lick. We begin to go for it. But what seems to be something that we would want actually becomes something that brings death to us. I don't know anybody who believes that they are on their own, a slave to sin or an addict. It's often those in the lives of those who are truly addicts that recognize the addiction for what it is. But the individual doesn't realize the power that that substance has over them. I don't know one person in my life, I know many who abuse alcohol, but I don't know one who chose to start because they wanted to be controlled by alcohol. Rather, it was the promise and the lure of what they thought the good things that it would bring. It would just bring they could be more social, made them feel better. It took away pain, but eventually it took control. That's how sin works. Romans six sixteen says this, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? And some of you go, well, I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I don't serve anyone. I would challenge you on that because I believe we are all slaves to something. And this verse in Romans says it clearly, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. It is our own lust for power and prestige, wealth, security, fame, and control that can lead to our very own demise. Sin brought the greatest death of all, a separation from God. And I could talk more on this, but I want to encourage you, if you've never really, never really dug deep into this, whether you are a Christ follower for years or this is all new to you, on Tuesday evening here at 6.30, the Foundations class is going to be talking about sin and the effects of the world. Come to that class. You'll learn more. But we're taking an overview this morning. And so with that, we find mankind lost, suddenly tainted by sin and separated from God. And so with that, to permanently deal with separation from his people, we see God's promise of a Savior. It's meaning someone who would set his people free. 
free from this slavery to sin. He would be a Messiah, someone who would deliver his people from bondage. Throughout the first section of the Bible, the Old Testament, this was written before Jesus came to earth. There are over 400 prophecies or predictions about the coming of a Messiah, one who would set his people free. This promised hope of a Messiah gave something for people to look forward to, to hold them through trials. But yet, if it was an unanswered, it would, it would never actually help. It needed to be more than just a wish. But again, hope is the confident expectation. It was of something that was going to come. And indeed it did. And it's what we celebrate today. So let's look into that as we see hope ransomed. From this point in Eden, we see world history to continue to move forward after the entrance of sin in the Garden of Eden. Battles and wars and kingdoms come and go. But God's promised Messiah who would restore his people remains hanging in the balance. Animal sacrifices are given in an attempt to, stop, uh, to bring a stopgap to pay for sin. But a divide between man and God still exists. God's people are still waiting for their Messiah. The one who would free his people who once again would restore things to the way they were to be. So as history moves forward, we see mankind try to respond to this need, this need that each one of us, when we're honest, when we have those quiet moments, each one of us know and experience. That longing and that emptiness, that need again to be, create, or to be connected with our Creator. And so mankind responded by creating religions and different civilizations and creeds, trying to address this longing. The tendency is, is when we know something is wrong, but we don't know what. Our tendency as human beings is to silently try to figure it out. What's wrong with me? And so we see mankind try to recreate itself with religions and kingdoms and ideologies. I don't know if you've hit those points in your life where you realize something's just wrong. It's out of whack. And you begin to reassess. And you begin to live life differently. You try new things. You try to rebuild yourself. When it comes to sin, you can't rebuild yourself. Some of us look at it and we kind of view it in the way like a, a, a Lego block. And we go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recreate. I'm going to take this apart. This is easy. I'm going to take it apart and I'm going to rebuild something new of myself. I don't like what this is, so I'm going to rebuild myself. I'm not going to hang out with those same people. or I'm not going to do this same thing. I'm going to take control here and I'm going to make it right because I just know it's not right right now. But that's not the answer. It never could be. Because you can't rebuild yourself. Your very DNA is tainted. And I don't say that judgmentally because so is mine. The very core of our being, something is wrong. And something is missing. And it's not simply a matter of taking the blocks of life apart and trying to rebuild it and then we'll fix it. It doesn't work. But rather what we see in Scripture is a real clear indication is that this God who created you and who created me, 
who wanted relationship with you and me, does not look at you as a failed experiment that needs to be taken, all the blocks taken apart and then rebuilt. But rather, he views you and me as what he always meant us to be. And that is a piece of art. Someone who is an art restorer of, of ancient works, they don't go, ah, this thing's dirty, let's repaint it. But rather, there's so much intrinsic value that they will painstakingly, slowly refurbish. Not to make something new, but rather to restore what once was because there is seen the intrinsic value in it. It's not worthless. You are a masterpiece that needed to be restored. Not something cheap and expendable. But you have so much worth to God that you were a masterpiece he wanted to restore. He wanted to have oneness. He wanted to have communion, relationship with you. So with that, he had to put a plan in place. And the most mind-boggling thing is he had a plan in place right from the start. He created you and me knowing that we had the capacity to choose not him. And he had this plan in place right from the beginning that he could still give us choice to love him and he would make sure that he could restore us so we could when we didn't. Before I I talk about Jesus, I want to just encourage you. Some of you have been getting that process of trying to rebuild life and trying to take apart the blocks and make something new. And in that, there is such an insecurity and an identity crisis that's going on. And there's voices around you that tell you that you're worthless, and there's yourself that's telling you you're worthless, and that's not the way God sees you. He wants to restore you. What you have in you is of such great value and those voices need to be challenged because that's not truth. This brings us to what we remember and celebrate today. Jesus coming to earth. See, these Jewish believers, these people that received God's instructions from him, Jewish believers waited for a Messiah. But this Messiah... This promised one who would set people free from this bondage. Jesus came not as they expected. When they heard of a coming Messiah, they pictured a mighty warrior who would defeat the evil kings and kingdoms that lorded over them, that treated them poorly. They wanted someone who would liberate and bring those who abused power over them under his own intimidation and rule. But Jesus didn't come to rule over an earthly kingdom. In Mark 10, 45, it says this, For even the Son of Man, that's speaking of Jesus, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, right from the beginning, Jesus Jesus didn't desire to rule over you. Jesus desired to be in relationship with you. That's why he didn't come to be served, because God, right from the beginning, chose not to create you Solely to serve him, but so that you could love him and he could love you. This word ransom, I want us to to expound on just for a minute. Perhaps like me, if you hear the word ransom, all you can hear is a very intimidating Liam Neeson yelling over someone at the phone. But ransom is the price for redeeming or freeing a slave at this time. 
It's to liberate from misery and penalty. The only thing that we could repay for sin, death, the only thing that could pay for that death was life. The existence of sin in us requires our very lives. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin costs life. There's a need for blood to pay for sin. If you're new to church this morning and we sang that song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, that might have creeped you right out this morning. What are these people talking about? Why are they singing about blood? But you have to understand the significance of what blood meant to the people of the Old Testament, Jewish followers of God. In Leviticus 17.11, it says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to make you atonement to cover your sins on the altar. It is blood that makes atonement or payment for one's life. Sin came with the cost of life, and life was needed to be paid for life. So in the Old Testament, there was the temporary substitution of animal sacrifice. That they would sacrifice an animal and shed its blood on an altar to pay for that sin. But this was... This was not a complete covering. This was only a temporary substitution. It was the equivalent of having, having someone having their leg severed off and having it put together with a tourniquet. It was a severe wound. And this was just a, a temporary cover to hold it over. But it wasn't complete. The wound of sin was too deep. It was fatal. It required more. And that brings us to the Easter story. The place is the ancient city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The time is the Passover. Passover was a Jewish holiday that celebrated when God freed his people from the brutal rule of Egypt. We see God send plagues over Egypt to get Pharaoh to release the Egyptians. This included storms and frogs and gnats and water turning to blood and all kinds of nasty things. But finally, God instructs Israel that he is going to bring one final plague upon the Egyptians, these people who had ruled over them and put them in slavery, after which Pharaoh would finally release him. It was an angel of death that would come and take the life of the firstborn son of every home. But the Israelites were instructed to protect themselves, and the way they were to do this was they were to sacrifice a lamb and paint the doorposts of their home with the lamb's blood. Again, blood equaled life. When the angel of death would pass over the home, if, they, if it saw the blood, it would leave that home and their son would be saved. So at the celebration of Passover, the Jews would sacrifice a lamb for God to pass over their sin. The lamb was needed to be perfect, spotless, without blemish. And I explained that because we need to understand exactly what Jesus was doing. That through this whole book, this whole love letter, the Bible, God had this plan in place. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, For Christ, Jesus, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. The ransom or payment for sin was blood. It was life. An animal sacrifice was a cheap band-aid and was not enough. So to pay for sin, what was needed was life, a perfect life, an unblemished lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the only one who ever lived without sin. God chose to send his own son, as the Bible tells us, to pay the ransom for sin by his own death. And we see the entrance of the cross in the Easter-tory. The ancient orator Cicero described crucifixion as the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves. Tacitus called it a despicable death. It was reserved for rebels, runaway slaves, deserting soldiers, and the worst of criminals. It combined four qualities the Romans prized most in execution. And that was agony, protracted death, not quick, but slow. Public spectacle, and with that, utter humiliation. Crucifixion was preceded by a beating with a nine-tail whip that had metal tips and bone clippings on the end of every strap. The executioner strapped Jesus to a block of wood while soldiers beat the shard tips of the whip into his back, his legs, The bones would tear into the flesh and rip both skin and muscle away when retracted. The tearing away of human flesh put the victim into immediate state of shock. Major blood loss ensued. And this was just the beginning. The crossbeam, not smooth, but splintered and jagged, would then be tied to their arms. And they would head up the uneven stones towards the road where they would eventually be crucified and killed. If anyone fell, they had nothing to keep their face from being smashed on the ground. You can imagine the fatigue from the beating, from the blood loss, from the pain, from the excruciation of trying to carry the weight up that uneven path. Upon arriving, the nails would be driven into the wrist and would pierce the main nerve running through the arm. Nails were driven into the feet as well, so the victim could hold themselves up and breathe while they fought excruciating pain to do so. There are many ways someone who is crucified could die. The purpose of this execution was so that there was extreme pain, and that death was prolonged. The most probable is that the individual will suffocate after any, many hours or even days of hanging on the cross as they could no longer hold themselves up to make room for their diaphragm to breathe. This was the form of death that God chose for his own son. God chose for his own son. All so that he could be united again with you. At the crux of this most excruciating torture, right before Jesus' death, we see him speak the most gracious, 
and extravagant words that could be spoken to the people who are the source of his torture and his mockery at the time of his death. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hebrews 12.2 says this, We are to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarded his shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. For the sake of the joy. The joy. You don't pay a ransom for someone or something you don't care about. If I received a phone call on the evening of the Stanley Cup final game that the Oilers are playing in, this of course is a made-up story, but if I receive a call and, and on, the, on the other side of the, of the line is a muffled voice that says, I owe them $1 million or Connor McDavid is not playing, that is the easiest decision of my life. Absolutely not. Because I don't care. You don't pay a ransom for someone or something you don't care about. Not only was God willing to pay a ransom for you, but he considered all that pain, all that humiliation, joy. Because he meant once again he could be reunited with you. That's how much he loves you. That at the height of his pain and his suffering was his concern, was your forgiveness. And the prospect that he could suffer so that you could once again be freed was joy to him. That's incredibly powerful. That's why we read the words in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him. Hope is being united again with God. This was his plan all, around, all along. And so on the first Easter morning, we see hope arrive. Imagine you're in a hospital and the doctor walks into a room. A mom and a dad hold the hand of their daughter lying unconscious, hooked up to a breathing machine. The beeping of other monitors ping bong back and forth as they hear the words they feared and dreaded. I'm sorry, but it's hopeless. A sunken, hollow death follows that word, hopelessness. It's something that is shrouded over and infected many in our world. It's led to bitterness, despair, depression, and death. For many of Jesus' followers, this was the feeling they experienced when the man they thought was the Messiah, the one that would liberate them, had died. In Luke 24, we see one of these events of Jesus being seen. As two men travel down the road, they encounter Jesus. And at the time they encounter him, they don't recognize, they don't know who it is that they're speaking with. And they begin to explain the current state of things that have happened to who they believe at the time as a stranger. Reacting to the crucifixion of the one who they had thought would be the Messiah. It's funny how often in life the true victory we have in Jesus arrives just on the other side of life's greatest challenges, life's greatest disappointments. 
But here we see in Luke 24, 21, these men say, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a long fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred or drug along, drawn out or postponed. These men had hoped. They knew what it was to have their hope deferred and they believed Jesus would free them. But the temporary perspective of simply seeing Jesus' death made them reevaluate that hope. I ask you this morning, what about your temporary circumstance make you reevaluate your hope? You thought there must be more to life, but you can't make sense of it. You can't make sense of there being a God when the world is so dysfunctional and so unfair. When your life and circumstances are so hard. Perhaps you're on the same road as these men. Heartsick and uncertain. But there is one who has control of the entire world. Your life. Your meaning. And he's right there beside you. Waiting for you to notice him. Hope has now arrived. In John 20, we see that on the third day, Jesus is no longer dead, but rather victorious over death. Not only is this death of Jesus a historical fact, but so too is the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. In fact, there is more historical proof for the resurrection of Jesus than there is that the Napoleon even ever existed. This led to people making up stories, trying to debunk like the swoon theory, which was said that the disciples stole the body, but doesn't even make sense, as there were guards around the tomb, guards who would have wanted nothing to do with that. Who the story and the idea of Jesus coming back to life would have been the opposite of what their rulers would have wanted and would have brought shame to them, would have forced them to lose their jobs. There was a, a, a stone in front of the tomb that weighed 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. It wasn't simply someone could sneak in while the guards weren't paying attention. And this doesn't even begin to explain how Jesus was seen by more than 500 people on 12 different occasions after his resurrection. There are going to be books at the end of this morning, if perhaps you want to read a little more about this, called The Case for Easter. And give you some facts about this. But the work of Jesus has made a path now so that you and I, once again, can be fully connected with God as we were created to be. The cross and the death of Jesus shows the price of sin. The resurrection of Jesus is a testament that the bill has now been paid in full. And the eternal separation that we've experienced from God is no longer binding when we receive that payment. God so loved that he gave. God loved you. And it's why Easter happened. It was all about his desire to be with you and reunited. And what we now have guaranteed through the resurrection is communion. Or being able to abide, to have that close, intimate relationship with God. Not just knowing facts about Jesus, but knowing him and being fully known by him. To abide is to be held, to be kept continually. It is what we truly actually hunger for. It's the presence of God. There is an experiential side of faith that should not be neglected. If you're looking at Jesus as simply an academic exercise, you're missing it. He is to be known and to experienced. 
John 14, 4, Jesus says, abide in me. And our hearts are restless until we do. Finally, as we close this morning, as hope arrived, it's important to remember that hope is now alive in you. As Jesus spoke those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. This morning, forgiveness is available to you. Forgiveness for everything that you have done. The slate wiped clean. And that hollowness and that emptiness and that longing inside fulfilled. It allows you to also live that forgiveness out to others. I'm going to ask if you'll stand with me. As we close this morning, I want to give an opportunity because perhaps there's someone here that came. It's Easter Sunday and you decided you were going to try church this morning. And there's something about the message this morning that resonated with you. You totally understand what it is to have that gap inside. That something is missing. I believe this morning that God wants to meet you personally and wants to fill that. So I want to pray with you today. And so I'm going to ask if everyone doesn't mind just closing their eyes. We don't do this because somehow closing your eyes can make you magically go to God. It's because many of you are like me and you get distracted really easy. Closing our eyes just lets us focus in the moment. And perhaps right now, even inside of you, there's something just stirring. I believe God has made his invitation to you today. God so loved that he gave his son so that you could know him again. You could live life with him, live life in fullness and in the completeness and the paradise that he always desired for you too. There's anyone here today, and you say, I want that. I don't have that and I want that today. Jesus, I want to receive that gift. I'm going to ask just as eyes are closed, if you just want to look up my way, maybe just want to lift your hand, I want to pray for you specifically today that God will meet with you. I'm just going to give 10 seconds here to give that opportunity. Let's pray. If it's you this morning, I want you just to pray this in your own heart. Jesus, Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying for me. I know I haven't done everything right. I've made mistakes. That word sin, it's in me. Please forgive me. Make me clean. Help me to be close to you again. Help me to live life full, complete. Take the emptiness and the hollowness. Make it alive again. I pray in Jesus' name. God, for those of us who know you, but perhaps again, we've diminished the meaning of the cross and we've forgotten how significant it is. Those of us who say we know you, but yet in our lives there's an inconsistency because there's still sin in our lives. 
We've made the cross something that pays for some sin, but not for all of it. We pray forgive us again this morning. Draw us back. For those of you, for those of us where this morning it seems so long since we've heard your voice, where we felt your presence. Again, God, would you awaken our hearts to the reality that you are alive and with us. God, that you desire to abide with us. Can you forgive us for the things that have come in the way and again, just come in fresh and anew. And help us to not just experience your forgiveness, but extend your forgiveness to those around us, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, say amen. Amen.